the Faith Dialogue podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. We're going to be in the first Sunday of Advent. I love Advent. My wife, if it was her choice, we would be singing Christmas carols six months out of the year. So it's just, it's just a special time to be able to, to get ready for, for Christmas and to be able to celebrate. Uh, we have three trees here at, the, at, at uh, the Windsor that our volunteers put up. Carol's got enough ornaments for maybe six or seven trees. Um, but we have three up here, so take a look at those as well. The dog tree is in the, in the lobby. There's also a tree with yoga penguins on it. Crazy. And then uh, <laughs> upstairs we have a tree as well. So, And it's our volunteers, our volunteers that come in and, and put those up with my wife and uh, we thank them all. So again, we're celebrating this, this season of Advent. So we're going to depart from our study in 2 Thessalonians and we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about these four themes, which is hope and then love, joy, and peace, the four weeks of Advent. And we know that sometimes people have, uh, uh, they put... Uh, uh, candles at home. They, they celebrate Advent in all different kinds of ways. Uh, but we're going to celebrate it by taking a look at what the scriptures have to say about these four themes. And again, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about hope, but a specific hope, and that is hope in God. Because it's God that truly never disappoints. You know, uh, the Advent is about, about getting ready for Christmas, but just as importantly, even more importantly, uh, we want to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Remember, we've talked about that often in 2 Thessalonians as well as 1 Thessalonians and some of our other, other um, uh, sermons. In, in Paul's letter to Titus, he calls it the blessed hope. He, he says this. He says, Paul tells us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the great God and Savior. So we want to clarify that, you know, not all hope is the same, right? I mean, when you were a child, you probably hoped that, that Santa Claus would bring you nice presents, okay? But that's a, a very superficial hope, and sometimes you're disappointed. I know yesterday there were many people that were hoping that Ohio State won, but <laughs> Michigan won the game, okay? I, I went to school there. I'm from Michigan, so I get to glory one year out of eight. So, so it, was a, it was a good game. Um, so today's letter uh, from Paul, we're going we're gonna to focus on 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. So let's read those and then we'll go back and we'll, we'll kind of take a look at those individual verses. Verse 17 says this, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He goes on, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is, is truly life. You know, we use that word hope a lot, don't we? I mean, we really do. I mentioned the football games and Christmas, but we use it, we, we, we use it all the time. You know, we hope for the best. Now, sometimes that hope is, is, is much more solid. You know, we hope for the best for our children, for our grandchildren. We hope that their life is even better than the life we had. We hope that as we age, we'll be able to live a, a long life and be a blessing to many people and, and not be taken care of. Uh, but here's, here's the thing. At a very fundamental level, hope for everybody, regardless of your religious persuasion, is, is essential. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of modern psychology. However, Psychology Today reported that it is universally understood that hope makes all present difficulties much easier to bear. Hope. Psychology Today reported uh, they found that children who had grown up in poverty but later had success in life all had one thing in common, and that was hope. It was the hope that sustained them through the difficult times. All of us understand the importance of hope is not only universally embraced, but is universally understood. Unfortunately, uh, the bitter reality is that so often hope disappoints. We hope for the best marriage, but sometimes those marriages aren't successful. We hope for the best for our children, but children take a different path than we hope. Our hopes for financial security are often dashed. When your 401k becomes a 201, right? I mean, all of a sudden you lose 50% of the value in the stock market. Friday was a little bit scary, by the way, if you're watching it. So let's revisit that very first verse today, and we'll take a look at what Paul has to say about hope in God. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now see, these were Paul's closing words to Timothy, talking about his ministry. And he's telling him, I want you to charge those that are rich in this present life to do something, and that's not to focus on 
the wealth. Don't focus on the uncertainty of riches, but to focus on, on God. You know, often we're disappointed. We, we put our hope in people, but people will disappoint you. Uh, sometimes people put their hope in, in a pastor or a church, but I got to tell you that, that sometimes that'll disappoint you as well. If you put your hope in a retirement plan and your health care plan, you know that sometimes that doesn't live up to what you had hoped for. But God, God will never disappoint you. Uh, God is always there for you. Uh, Paul's charge is to the rich in this present age. And now this phrase often is used to talk about generosity. We'll, we'll pick it up. We'll talk about that a little bit, about being rich and that we live in America where even the bottom 10% live better than the 90% in the rest of the world. So there's a point in that. But Paul says the rich in this present age, which means that there's an age to come. You see, they're rich now, but there's, a, a, there's an age to come. This, this present age is flawed. Uh, there's sin. There's sickness. There's death. The coming age, however, is marked with perfection. The present age is, is temporary, but the coming age is eternal. The present age is lived out here on earth while Jesus is reigning in heaven. The coming age, which is called the millennial age, the eternal age, is, is lived out while Christ is reigning here on earth. So it's a different. Paul says those that are rich in this present age. Now, that means the people that are rich have an abundance of, of resources. They have all they need and more. They've got things stored up. Remember the parable of the, of the rich young farmer uh, who had a bumper crop. And he decided that he was going to tear down his barns and build some new barns. Now, as we read through it, we didn't see that he was doing anything necessarily wrong. It's something that many of us would do to be able to store away for the future. But then the words are, you fool. Okay, you fool because today your life will be expected of you. You see, the Bible says that he was rich in this life, but he was not rich towards God. And that's what Paul wants. That's what these instructions are for, is to be, to be rich towards God. Paul's us not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches because they are, they are often fleeting. Maybe you've discovered this. I know I have. You have a, may, may have a great job at one time or a nice financial portfolio, plenty stored up, but we know that we really can't trust in them, can we? So let's go through. We have three lessons today from this, this one verse. The first, one, first lesson is don't measure your value by your wealth. Don't measure who you are by how much money you have. It seems like a given, doesn't it? I mean, we should know that. We should know that people are more than the amount of money they have in their pocketbook. But you know, that's typically how we measure success. You know, for example, if I told you that there was somebody that I knew that had a great career in real estate, great career in real estate, you would assume that maybe they had commercial property or residential properties and they bought and sold and they made a lot of money. That's why they were successful, because they made a lot of money. But what if I told you that this person I'm thinking of would buy dilapidated houses, run down houses, houses that were basically condemned, fix them up, put new appliances in them, make them one of the prettiest houses in the neighborhood, and then give them to veterans, people that were disabled, uh, single moms that needed houses. Well, that person is Gary Sinise. You maybe know him as Lieutenant Dan, right, from Forrest Gump, or you might know him as Mac from CSI. But Gary Sinise and his foundation does that. They've done it to thousands of homes, put them in the hands of people that truly need them. He's successful. He's successful in real estate, and he's also rich towards God. 
Here we understand that true success is measured by God's standard, not man's standard. It's not about how much money we make. It's not about our wealth, but a willingness to submit to God's desire for your life and what you do with the talents that God has given you. The second lesson from our scripture today is don't measure your security by your wealth, your security. My training and much of the time I spent with Ford Motor Company was on the finance side. God gave me a mind for numbers. Uh, I was called a numbers guy. Still am sometimes, but I was a numbers guy. I did well in finance. I understood that. I was, I was on the mergers and acquisition team at Ford Motor Company so that when Ford was buying something or selling something, they would have me uh, come in and, and, and be a part of a team, be a part of a team. So that's what I did. But let me tell you, we all know that some of those household names, those big companies, those very successful companies of yesterday are no longer here today. Remember Kodak moments? Remember Kodak? Kodak is no longer around. Kodak was a $50, $60 billion company and it's, and it's gone. Toys R Us, my son's first employer. We used to call my son, his middle name is Jeffrey. We used to call him Adam Jeffrey Giraffe. <laughs> and he used to get mad. That was the Toys R Us theme. Kids love going to Toys R Us from the 50s and 60s and 70s. For our kids back in the 80s, it was their favorite place. They would love to stop at Toys R Us. Well, Toys R Us, last door closed in 2018. Pier 1, when I was a freshman going into college, okay, that's where all of the students went. We went to Pier 1 because it was cheap and kind of trendy. You could buy beads for your rooms or, or black lights or, or funky chairs or, or, or woolly, uh, uh, woolly rugs, all kinds of fun stuff. But the last Pier 1 closed up just a couple years ago. Remember the scandal back in 1999, a company called Enron. Enron, one of the most successful energy companies, okay? $75 billion company. And it went down because of a scandal and they took down the number one uh, uh, accounting firm as well, Arthur Anderson. Everybody respected, Arthur Anderson used to pull the lottery balls for the state of Florida, right? Because we could trust Arthur Anderson, but they caught up, got caught up in the scandal and Arthur Anderson along with Enron are no longer. The saying is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And the scriptures would say, put no faith in riches. Proverbs 23 says, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. They will surely spout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. You can see your money kind of flying away like a, like a bird. Another proverb that speaks to this is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. And I love this. God says, have no fear of sudden disaster. See, this is different. God is saying, have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. So let's go on to our, our third lesson. Don't expect enjoyment in life to come from wealth. Don't expect your enjoyment to come from a little bit more money. People believe that if they have just a little bit more money, they'll be, they'll be happier. Uh, but, but studies have proven that isn't true at all. That isn't true at all. Social scientists have studied the relationship between money and happiness and have found out something that we likely all know. And that is the more money you have, the more money you want. And here's the second thing they found out, that the, the more you have, the less effective money is in bringing you joy. You just... They miss the joy. Some people that have so much money miss out on those little things of life that bring the rest of us joy. The squeeze of a child's hand in your hand, the, the smell of flowers, a, a walk through the forest, hearing birds 
chirp on the first day of spring. I mean, some of these things that, that we get to enjoy, they've lost their enjoyment because their focus is only on what money can provide. But here's what Paul is telling Timothy in verse 17. He says, put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And here's something I'm going to tell you, and you're going to love this, because there's one thing that you have, that you have, or you can have, that all the richest men in the world don't have. Okay, And I'm talking about the people that are household names. People like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. So you see, they have lots of money. But the one thing that you have or you can have that they don't have can be summed up in just one word. And that word is enough. You can have enough. You can enjoy the riches of God, understanding that you have enough. Enough for yourself to enjoy and enough to be willing to share. Now, verse 18, Paul's next instruction is found in verses 18 and 19. And, and Paul's answering the question, how do you store up treasures in heaven, right? The Bible tells us, store up your treasure in heaven, right? And Paul talks about that here. And he's going to tell us basically how we do that. So let's go back to verse 18. Paul says, these are about the rich again, rich in this life. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for, which the fut in the, for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, so Paul says, let those who are rich be rich in good works. The Bible tells us that we're not saved by good works, right? I know you have to make sure that we understand this. It isn't about how much money you give away that gets you into heaven. The Bible clearly says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift of God. Not of works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what's the purpose of these good works? How does this, these good works work? Well, see, this ties in directly with our message today. When we trust in God, when we hope in God and not in our riches, then we can let go of that which nobody ever has enough of. You see, how can you save up enough money for retirement? You don't know how long you're going to live. I, have a, I, had, a, um, I had a fraternity brother. In fact, he was one of my roommates that became a very successful attorney in Chicago. And he did estate law. And he would do a lot of financial planning for very, very wealthy people. And, and, I, and I saw him this about 10 years ago. And we were talking. And he says, I give some free advice. I'll give you some free advice, Ken. And I said, OK. He said, this is from a tax attorney. This is from an estate planner. Here's my advice for you. Figure out exactly how long you're going to live and spend accordingly. <laughs> Figure out how long you're going to live and spend a little. And see, this is, this is the dilemma that people have. If you're not rich towards God, if you're not relying on God, if your hope is not in God, but it's instead in your bank account, how do you know you have enough? You know, we teach that the Bible says that everything belongs to the Lord. Everything. He has the cattle on a thousand hill. He has everything. You are to be a good steward of those things that he's entrusted to you. The Bible also says that the very first portion, the first fruits belongs to God. We teach actually a tithe. We think if the tithe was good enough in the Old Testament, it's even more important for us in the New Testament. We're supposed to be generous. Well, how can you give away the first 10% because you don't know how much, how long your money's supposed to last? But if you hope in God, if your trust is in God and not in your bank account, it's easy, much more easy to be generous. 
to be able to give away what you have, knowing that God will always provide for you. So we get to have the something that all those other people don't have, and that is we get to have enough. God says, I'm the one who has given you the ability to acquire wealth. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. God tells us that when we're generous and we share with others, we build up a treasury, a storehouse in heaven. Isn't that amazing? You can't, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Isn't that wonderful? Bible says put your hope in God because God doesn't disappoint. Bible says that all the promises in God are yes and amen. Now, this season of Advent is set aside as a time of, of preparation. We celebrate Christ's first Advent, his birth in Bethlehem, over 2,000 years ago. And we're going to do that just in, in four weeks. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's almost December. We prepare ourselves now, however, as well for his, his second Advent. That's being rich towards God. His return to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as a result, we respond, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. So Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this season of Advent. It is so wonderful, Lord. Listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.